Well, today is Biblical Sexuality Sunday. If you haven't heard of that, you're not alone. Uh, This was begun last year in order to give churches an opportunity to kind of join together in proclaiming the biblical worldview regarding sexuality. And the group that's spearheading this is the Liberty Coalition of Canada. Their work springs from a document called the Niagara Declaration. It's an excellent document outlining the freedoms that Canadians have traditionally enjoyed because of their biblical base for government, freedoms which are currently under serious assault. If you paid attention to our sister churches in Canada and what's going on there, you know that there are some severe threats happening to those churches and those pastors now. And while the Liberty Coalition is primarily a political outreach, it's carried out by Christians who are seeking to faithfully live out their faith in the public sphere. So a number of churches in the United States who share the same concerns as these Canadian brothers have also joined in to add our voices to the declaration of what God's word has to say about biblical sexuality, along with churches in Europe and around the world. Now, we in the United States may be a few years behind uh, the downgrade that is being experienced in Canada in the area of politics and law, but we're on the same path. So today's message is intended to give voice to what God says about who we are as men and women created in his image. And there may be times in this message that you find it to be uncomfortable. That's okay. My goal is not to um, be sensational or to, um, to, to pander or cater to the, the current kind of whims of culture or anything like that, my goal is to plainly, clearly, and fully say what God has to say about this topic. Now, obviously, we're limited by time, but I want to just be as direct as I can in some of these things. Unless you've had your head deep in the sand for the last several years, you're aware of some serious challenges being made to the biblical view of men and women and of sexuality. There's been an explosion of LGBTQIA plus ideology in the media and in schools, in law, in entertainment, and in the culture at large. So how are Christians supposed to think about these things? Are Christians who uphold the biblical teaching on these issues bigots? Are we unloving, intolerant? Do these issues really matter? There's so many things that we could address this morning that are coming at us in our world today. We could talk about what's going on in schools and libraries. We could talk about the legislation being passed. We could talk about the positions that various politicians are taking. And all of those would be worthwhile. And the Bible has much to say about them. But the first step for us is to simply present what the Bible teaches. And then we can work to apply those teachings in the various aspects of our lives. So this morning I want to ask and answer seven questions. And these seven questions will help us think through the basic teaching of the Bible in light of the issues that are confronting us today. So here's the questions. Number one, what is a man? Number two, what is a woman? Number three, what is a marriage? Number four, what is a family? Number five, what is an identity? Number six, what is a gender? And number seven, what is a pronoun? 
All right, so that's where we're headed this morning. Obviously, we can't take long on any one question, so these will be brief, but my hope is that together they will give us a picture of what God says biblical sexuality is to be. So let's start with this first basic question. What is a man? Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. And um, by the way, you can hold your place in Genesis 1 and 2 through these first four questions, okay? Genesis chapter 1, very first chapter of the Bible. Now the word man can sometimes mean mankind, which includes both men and women. That's not the question we're asking this morning. We're asking what is a man in contrast to a woman? The best place for us to go, for starters, is where man is first mentioned in the Bible. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Okay? So look at those verses with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, this passage describes the creation of mankind, both man and woman. But note at the end of verse 27, God says that he created them male and female. When we talk about a man, we are talking about the male person that God created. God makes a distinction between the male and the female the man and the woman. Now in the next chapter, Genesis 2, we get some more details about the creation of man and woman. We learn in verse 7 that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. That's talking about the man specifically. He's made from dirt. The affinity that little boys have for dirt comes naturally. It's part of the created order. They're made from dirt. Okay? Then we are told in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God gave the man a job, working to cultivate and protect the garden. Man is supposed to work. Now we'll talk about the creation of woman in a minute, but for now, please note that God is the one who makes the distinction between man and woman. He created them both. They're different. They're different biologically, anatomically. They're different in their created roles and in the work that God gives them. Scientifically speaking, you have about 8 trillion cells in your body, and if you're a man, then every cell in your body has an XY chromosome. If you're a woman, then all of your cells are XX chromosomes, objectively. Now, let me give you one way that the Bible expresses this difference, and this has to do with language. Have you noticed, by the way, that anti-biblical elements in our society are always wanting to redefine words? So we redefine what marriage is. We redefine what a man is, what a woman is. That's why we're talking about this question, what is a man? What is a woman? There is a concerted effort 
to tamp down normal masculine elements today. So even in the church, oftentimes music becomes feminized. You know, the Jesus is my girlfriend type of songs. Even our Bible translations have softened the language at times. There's been a move to feminize even our Bibles in some ways because the masculine has been deemed unacceptable, crude. So what I'm about to share with you may seem a bit crude to you today. I'm not sharing it for that purpose. I'm sharing it to help you see how the Bible speaks and maybe to sense how we've drifted a little bit from it in what we understand to be normal today. Okay? So, the Bible doesn't hesitate to speak very directly about maleness and femaleness. Let me show you a verse. This is 1 Samuel 25, 22. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now this is David talking about exacting vengeance on Nabal, who had done him wrong. And he's saying that he will kill all of Nabal's male children or grandchildren so that he's left with no heir. Now, for our purpose this morning, the storyline is beside the point. Instead, I want you to notice the phrase, one male. Okay? This is the ESV translation. That's the translation we usually use in our church. It's a good one. There's lots of good translations. The most well-known older translation is the King James Version. And in this verse, the King James translates this phrase differently. In fact, it translates it literally. It gives the exact meaning of the Hebrew. Here's what it says. So, and more also, do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light, any that pisseth against the wall. Do you see the change? The phrase one male is literally any that pisseth against the wall. Now, this isn't the only time the Bible uses that phrase. It, it does this five times. Okay? It's not just this one place. This is a really easy way to distinguish male and female. Men pee against the wall. Women don't. Okay? You want to know what a man is? Can the person stand three feet away from the wall and pee on it? Then it's a man. This would be a really helpful test for high school and colleges to implement when trying to determine what sports team an individual belongs on. Would it not? You see, the Bible doesn't shy away from being honest about the differences between men and women. Anatomical differences, biological differences, role differences. God made them male and female. Let's go to the next question. What is a woman? This is a question that has gotten quite a bit of attention over the last year or two. Conservative commentator Matt Walsh made a documentary by that title, What is a Woman? And a multitude of ridiculous answers were given as people tried to go along with the currently acceptable narrative. And a number simply refused to answer. They got up and left. They got offended. They accused Walsh of hate speech for even asking the question. Then we have Katanji Brown-Jackson, our newest Supreme Court Justice, when asked during her confirmation hearing if she could provide a definition of a woman, which you would think you would want someone on the Supreme Court to know, 
She said she couldn't because, quote, I'm not a biologist. Which, interestingly, seems to suggest that being a woman has something to do with your biology. What does God have to say about this? Well, if we go back to where we left off in Genesis chapter 2, after the creation of the man, we find this. In verse 18, God says that it's not good for man to be alone. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. And then in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam, the man, says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So man is from the dirt, woman is from the man. God says that the role of the woman is to be a helper to the man. The man has the task of dominion, guarding, and keeping And the woman is his helper in that task. But they also have very specific, unique roles in their maleness and femaleness. We'll talk about marriage in just a moment. But for now, let me just note one thing that the Bible has to say here. This is 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, this is in the context of marriage, and we'll talk about marriage in a minute, but note here simply that men and women are different. Peter says that the woman is the weaker vessel. Now, that might be physically weaker, it might be emotionally, whatever it is, there is a difference between men and women. It's not a value statement saying that one is better than another. It's simply saying that God has made us different. But also note what goes with it. The man is to treat the woman in an understanding way, showing honor to her. Today, many women read a verse like this and rebel against it. How dare Peter say that women are weaker? But think about this. If you saw a queen traveling with a bodyguard, protecting her, would you think, Boy, he's really dishonoring her. He must really look down on her. No, of course not. Because she needs the protection? Deserves the honor? Does that mean that she's lesser? Not in any way. It takes a certain level of rebellion against God to read what God says here and think it's somehow demeaning to women. Scripture honors women honors them in their differences, physical, biological, anatomical, spiritual, relational, vocational differences. Next question, what is a marriage? Our culture today has redefined marriage. Our Congress and President have just passed into law the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which requires states to recognize so-called gay marriage. There actually is no such thing as gay marriage because God created marriage. He defines what it is and what it isn't. But our culture is rebellious and defiant against God on this issue. So picking up in Genesis 2 again, we read that God says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is the origin of marriage and of the sexual union. This still stands today. 
Jesus repeated it. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus is answering a question about divorce. And here's what he says. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus sees the creation of man and woman, male and female, and God bringing them together in the first marriage as the rule and standard for marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Okay, and, and by the way, just note what you can even just discern in that first verse there. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus identifies two categories, male and female. That's it. Not the 72 categories of Facebook or whatever they are. There's two. There's male and there's female. And not only that, he grounds it in creation. If you create something, if you make something, you are the owner of it. You determine what it is and what it's for and all of that. And nobody else has the right to come along and take what you made and distort it or break it or change it. God made marriage. God made maleness and femaleness. It belongs to him. The man and the woman in the marriage have different roles. Paul describes this in Ephesians 5. This is a longer passage, so just listen as I read it for you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the husband and the wife have different roles given by God. Men are to lead. This is not because women are somehow essentially inferior. No, it's because God designed marriage this way and he designed it as a picture of Christ and the church. The husband leads the wife as Christ leads the church, but that leadership means self-sacrificial love. And the wife respects the husband as the church is to respect Christ. And when marriage follows God's design, it's a beautiful thing. Scripture also tells us that the relationships that deviate from God's design are sinful. 
Romans 1 describes the downward spiral of a culture that rejects God. And in the middle of that description, we find this. Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the Bible clearly tells us that homosexuality and lesbianism are described as dishonorable, unnatural, and shameful. And by the end of the description in Romans 1, we read this in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Every congressman who voted for the so-called Respect for Marriage Act and our president who signed it into law fall under the condemnation of that verse. They are approving of what God says is sin. God designed marriage. He defines it. Next question, what is a family? And this is related to the question of biblical sexuality because one of the purposes for marriage is procreation, having children. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God said to the man and the woman, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. Right from the start, God's vision for the family was that when a man and woman married, they would have children and grandchildren, and eventually the earth would be filled so that man and woman could fulfill their responsibility of dominion. Our culture today rebels against that. Young couples decide that they would rather focus on themselves than to obey God's command regarding children. We've made abortion easily available so that we can simply dispose of the inconvenience of children. It's despicable. Psalm 127, 3-5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. God intends marriages to be fruitful. This is part of why homosexual unions can never be real marriages. Again, we're back to basic anatomy and biology here. If you lock two men in a house for 10 years with food and water and toilets, how many children will they create by the end of those 10 years? None. If you do the same thing with two women, 10 years in a house, food, water, toilets, how many children at the end of those 10 years? None. But if you put a man and a woman in a marriage, in a house, for 10 years, how many children will they create by the end of that time? Well, that's a different story. That's God's design because men and women are different. A marriage is a man and a woman And a family is an obedient man and woman being fruitful and multiplying. Our fifth question, what is an identity? In our culture today, this refers to someone's self-understanding of who they are. It may or may not align with their biology. 
In other words, the accepted idea in our culture today is that your body may have boy parts, but you think of yourself as a girl, and that's okay. Well, that's not biblical. That's not biblical sexuality. And one of the core reasons for that is that God is holy. God is whole. He's not divided. He has integrity. He has wholeness, completeness. And when he makes someone male, they are male through and through. When he makes someone female, they are female through and through. At the level of your DNA, every cell in your body proclaims your maleness or your femaleness. But what if that's not how they think of themselves? What if they have different desires? Well, it's really very simple. We all have desires that deviate from the standard God created us with. Maybe you want to take something that doesn't belong to you. Wishing that it was yours doesn't make it true. It's wrong for you to take it, and it's wrong for you to dwell on a desire for something that isn't yours. Maybe you naturally express anger. Well, just being true to yourself and throwing a tantrum is still a sin. We all have sinful desires, but we're called biblically to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We don't just do whatever we want because sometimes we want the wrong things. So we have to say no to ourselves. Well, are you suggesting that someone should deny their homosexual identity or their transgender identity? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because it's wrong, it's sinful, and it's unholy. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, made holy. You've been changed. All of us Christians have been changed. We are no longer to identify with our sin. Being a gay Christian makes no more sense than being an angry Christian or an adulterous Christian and thinking that that's somehow okay. God changes our sinful hearts. Stop calling your maleness or femaleness the sex assigned at birth. Your sex was given to you by God long before you were born. And no one, not a doctor, not a teacher, not you yourself, can change it. You are who God created you to be. And that leads to our next question. What is a gender? If identity is how you think about yourself, according to our culture, gender has to do with the outward expression of that, according to our culture. Again, our culture wants to separate this out and pretend that it can legitimately be different from your biological sex 
or your self-understood identity, but not according to God's word. Again, God created you to be a man or a woman. Your biology and anatomy, your self-understanding, and your outward behavior are all supposed to line up with the creation standard. You are who God says you are. Now, we've touched on the different roles that God gives to men and women. That's true in the home, and it's true outside the home. Paul goes to great lengths when he writes to the Corinthian church to talk to them about dress and hairstyle. I'm not going to turn to the passage this morning, and the argument takes a while to explain, so I won't do that. I'll just boil it down to this. Paul is saying that the central issue is the issue of authority. Do you accept God's authority and his design, which includes gender identity and husband-wife roles? And Paul's saying that the way you dress and your hairstyle and things like that are communicating something about whether or not you submit to God's authority and design. So the application is basically that men should look like men and women should look like women. Women should not present themselves as not under authority. What would that look like? Well, in our day, the equivalent of what Paul's describing would be things that draw attention to yourself. Short dresses, tight or revealing clothing, attention-getting hairstyles, those kinds of things are what, if Paul was writing today, he would include in the list. And men should present themselves as those in authority, not effeminate, not dressed like a pretty boy, not speaking effeminately. Be a man. Can a woman have short hair? Yes, if it's not masculine. Can a man have long hair? If it's not effeminate. The old-timer on the Harley with the long gray ponytail that's clearly a man is not in danger of violating what Paul's saying because he's not going to be confused for a woman. Neither is the Scottish man wearing a kilt. Okay, It's not about the particulars. But if people are mistaking you for a girl, cut your hair. And Paul isn't innovating here. He's picking up a principle from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Cross-dressing and transgenderism are violations of God's law, because God's the creator, and he made them male and female. And the last question I want to cover this morning is the question, what is a pronoun? And you may wonder why I include that one. Language is important. We use words to describe reality, and we should do that in truth. God is a God of truth, and his people should be as well. So when a man says that he's a woman, and he wants you to call him she, you have a Christian responsibility not to do it. Don't perpetuate the lie. Ephesians 4, 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You are to speak the truth even if someone doesn't want to hear it. But won't you offend someone by doing that? Yeah, probably. But that's not the point. Now, I'm not saying to offend people unnecessarily. Not by any stretch. But we're pretty far from that situation in our current cultural situation today. Just the air, don't worry. 
in our day, we are not, um, we're not in danger of unnecessarily offending. The vast majority of the offense that you will create as a Christian is by simply speaking the truth in love. Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Your duty to God is higher than your duty to any man. So don't deny what your creator has said in an effort to make someone feel better. Paul reasons this way in Galatians 1. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So let me ask you, are you a servant of Christ? If you are, then stop trying to please man. Our culture has a war on words because words define reality. And all too often Christians just kind of passively go along with it rather than standing firm for the truth of Scripture. If we want to uphold biblical sexuality, we must uphold God's way of speaking about these issues. Now, I realize that this morning we've covered topics that can be difficult. And I've tried to be clear and plain spoken and to simply point out for us what God says in his word. What God says is so very different from what our culture wants to tell us. And you will be pressured to go along with the cultural narrative. You'll be penalized if you don't adopt the language of the regime. You'll be accused of hate speech for simply upholding biblical truth. But remember what Jesus said. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. It's basically impossible to talk about these issues without seeing the great battle of our day, this conflict between Christians and the culture. But at the same time, I want to emphasize the positive side of biblical sexuality that we have seen. God made us, he created us, male and female, for a reason. God's the one who created the joys of marriage. God's the one who designed sexuality. And when enjoyed within the guidelines of his design, it brings him glory and us great joy. So embrace God's design. Take delight in it. Be a joyful warrior when it comes to engaging with the culture on these issues. If you stand with God's word, then you're on the right side. Let's honor God by embracing his creational design. And I guess what I want to finish with is to remind you of what Paul said to the Corinthians. Such were some of you. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. And there's a lot of sexual sin represented in this room. But in the gospel, there is forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness in Christ. Because this is a sin that Jesus died to pay the penalty for. And by the power of his spirit, he changes people's hearts and minds. That's why Paul could say to the Corinthians, such were some of you. And if he's changed your heart, 
then live in holiness and gratitude. And if you're struggling with those sins, know that the gospel is for you. The repentance and forgiveness that is in Christ is for you. So turn from the sin and turn to Christ. Receive the forgiveness that God offers and live in holiness. God's design for biblical sexuality is perfect. His design is perfect. He calls us as his people to live in in line with that design. It's a struggle in this world. Because everything in this world is screaming at us to head in the opposite direction. That's why we have to listen to his word. That needs to be the voice that we're tuned into, the voice that we are hearing, and the standard and rule for our life. So listen this morning to his word. Listen to the offer of the gospel. Listen to the offer of forgiveness. Respond to his spirit. And in faith, walk with him in holiness. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your design for sexuality for humans. It's a good design. We live in a culture that is rejecting that design and coming up with ever more creative ways to rebel against it. I pray that you would give us as your people the ability, the strength to live faithfully, to live holy lives in the midst of a culture that is turning away from you. Help us to shine as lights in this world, pointing people to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.